Often we discuss the mystery schools of the ancient Western world and the ways in which the Rosicrucian order Amorc perpetuates their wisdom. Today, we will explore some of the Eastern sources of the Rosicrucian tradition. Michael Meyer, the 17th century alchemist and royal physician, wrote, The Rosicrucians are, quote, guardians of an ancient tradition, originating with the Egyptians and the Brahmins, descending from the mysteries of Eleusis and Samothrace, the Magi of Persia, the Pythagoreans, and the Arabs, end quote. The Brahmins are the priestly caste of Hinduism. In the more recent manifestation of the Rosicrucian tradition, the ancient and mystical order Rosicrucius, H. Spencer Lewis introduced other Eastern traditions in the teachings, including Buddhist, from which he received an honorary ordination. Today we will explore some of the concepts and practices that Rosicrucians have inherited from the East. We will also look at the nation of India, the land that gave rise to four major religions, Hinduism, Jainism, Buddhism, and Sikhism. And finally, I will present a few impressions from the recent Rosicrucian trip to India, sponsored by the English Grand Lodge. Rosicrucian students practice many techniques that originated in the East or are common with them. This includes meditation techniques, the intonation of vowel sounds, concepts such as karma and reincarnation, and our view of God or the cosmic. Early in the Rosicrucian monographs, students are introduced to a simple breathing technique that assists the mind in concentrating. We focus our attention on the breath as it enters and exits the nostrils. Try this very simple technique for a few moments. Be aware of the effect it has on your body and mind. Another practice that is common to many traditions around the world, including many in the East, is what Rosicrucians call the overall exercise. This is done by focusing our attention on a tiny vibrating cell in a particular part of our body, in one of our toes, for example, and then gradually expanding our awareness until we have repeated this process over our entire body. Practice the overall exercise and be aware of the effect it has on your body and mind. Rosicrucians intone vowel sounds similar to chants or mantras in other traditions. The vowel sound OM is especially important in many cultures. One of the ancient Hindu Vedic texts states, The goal which all the Vedas declare, which all austerities aim at, and which men desire when they lead the life of continence, is OM. In Hinduism, OM is believed to be the basic sound of the world and to contain all other sounds. If repeated with the correct intonation, it can resonate throughout the body so that the sound penetrates to the center of one's being, the Atman, or the soul. The 14th Dalai Lama of Tibet has been working with the University of Wisconsin and Harvard Medical School to research the physiological effects of some of these meditation practices. They have found that certain meditation techniques increase or keep from decreasing the size of the cortex of our brains. It is like brain calisthenics. Certain areas of the brain are larger for people who meditated 40 minutes or longer per day. 
There are a number of concepts that are common to Eastern traditions and the Rosicrucian teachings. Both traditions believe that the supreme being, God or the cosmic, is imminent. In the Rosicrucian tradition, the Shekinah in a temple represents God in our midst. Hindu and Buddhist temples often include figures of gods and goddesses present to help the individual. On our trip to India, on one occasion when we were allowed to enter a Hindu temple, we presented offerings, including a basket with a coconut, a banana, and some grass. Following the ritual, the priest gave part of our offering back to us. When we left the temple, we were greeted by a live elephant. This particular temple was dedicated to the elephant god Ganesh. We gave our grass and banana to the elephant, who then tapped each of us on the head with his trunk, a blessing of Ganesh. Often Hinduism is thought to be polytheistic. However, a more accurate term is henotheistic. Hindus believe that there is an unknowable, supreme being that manifests into different attributes. These are then personified as gods and goddesses. In Kabbalah, an important source for the Rosicrucian tradition, there is a similar concept. These different aspects or attributes are represented as sephirot. Other concepts that are common to both Eastern traditions and Rosicrucianism are karma, reincarnation, and ahimsa. Karma is from a Sanskrit word meaning action. It is most often defined as cause and effect. Our actions and thoughts today create the life we live tomorrow, next year, and in the next life. Reincarnation posits that there is some aspect of ourself that continues to live after the death of the body. This then becomes incarnate in a body, again in a future life. Ahimsa means non-violence. This concept is central to the Jain religion. Some Jain nuns and monks wear face masks so that they cause no harm to microscopic beings by breathing them in accidentally. Of course, they are also vegetarians. Some experts suggest that Pythagoras was familiar with Jainism because the concepts of ahimsa and vegetarianism were so important in his school. It is commonly agreed that Pythagoras traveled to Egypt, Crete, and Babylon, and some experts say he must have also traveled to India, where the Jains lived, as he was familiar with these concepts. More recently, in Amwark, H. Spencer Lewis included a number of Eastern traditions in the Rosicrucian teachings. In the 10th degree, we study various religions, including Buddhism. According to Rosicrucian tradition, Jesus lived for some time in India. Following his 13th birthday, he was conducted to India to study for five years with the Buddhist initiate Lamas. Two of the invisible masters of the Rosicrucian and other traditions were Kutumi, who lived in Kashmir, and Master Maurya, who was born in Punjab. H. Spencer Lewis was familiar with Buddhism and received an honorary ordination into that tradition. Now let's look at India. India is a fascinating culture. 
Their ancient traditions are still alive and practiced by modern Indians, much as their ancestors did centuries and millennia ago. India gave rise to four major religions, Hinduism, Jainism, Buddhism, and Sikhism. We will start with Hinduism. Hinduism has no founder, central authority, or hierarchy, and is not a proselytizing religion. Hindus believe in Brahman, which is eternal, uncreated, and infinite. Everything that exists emanates from Brahman and will ultimately return to it. The following is from the book India, edited by Serena Singh. Quote, Hindus believe that earthly life is cyclical. You were born again and again, a process known as samsara. The quality of these rebirths being dependent upon your karma in previous lives. Living a righteous life and fulfilling your dharma will enhance your chances of being born into a higher caste and better circumstances. Alternatively, if enough bad karma has accumulated, rebirth may take animal form. It is only as a human that you can gain sufficient self-knowledge to escape the cycle of reincarnation and achieve spiritual liberation. End quote. According to censusindia.net, there are more than 870 million Hindus in India. Hinduism has become the third largest religion in the world, following Christianity and Islam. Next, we'll look at Jainism. Jainism is one of the world's oldest living religions. There are approximately 4.2 million Jains in the world, most of whom live in India. Jain, or Jina, means a conqueror, one who has conquered the worldly passions such as desire, hatred, anger, greed, and pride by one's own personal efforts. A Jina is a human being, not a supernatural being or an incarnation of an almighty God. All human beings have the potential to become a jina. According to IndianChild.com, the ancient belief system of Jainism rests on a concrete understanding of the working of karma, its effects of the living soul, and the conditions for extinguishing action and the soul's release. According to the Jain view, the soul is a living substance that combines with various kinds of non-living matter and through action accumulates particles of matter that adhere to it and determine its fate. Most of the matter perceptible to human senses, including all animals and plants, is attached in various degrees to living souls and is in this sense alive. Any action has consequences, that necessarily follow the embodied soul, but the worst accumulations of matter come from violence against other living beings. The ultimate Jain principle, therefore, rests on complete inactivity and absolute nonviolence or ahimsa against any living beings. Now we will look at Buddhism. Buddhism began in India with the life of Siddhartha Gautama who lived around 563 to 483 BCE, a prince from the small Shakya kingdom located in the foothills of the Himalayas near the Nepalese-Indian border. Brought up in luxury, 
the prince abandoned his home and became a penniless and homeless wanderer, searching for the meaning of existence. After a long and exhausting period of searching and self-mortification, he became disillusioned with Hindu asceticism and the religious doctrines of his time. He devoted the final phase of his quest to meditation and, at the age of 35, achieved nirvana, the state of full awareness, at Bihar, India, while meditating under a fig tree. Critical of the caste system and the unthinking worship of gods, the Buddha, which means enlightened one, urged his disciples to seek truth within their own experiences. The teachings of Buddha include the Four Noble Truths and the Noble Eightfold Path. The Four Noble Truths are these. Life involves suffering. Desire is the source of our suffering. There's a way to put an end to our desire. The way out of desire is to live one's life according to eight basic principles. The Noble Eightfold Path includes right understanding or view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right awareness or mindfulness, and right concentration. By successfully complying with these, one can attain nirvana, freedom from suffering, the ultimate reality. Last, we will look at Sikhism. The founder and first leader or guru of Sikhism was Nanak, who lived from 1469 to 1538. He was the son of a Hindu warrior family. Nanak married, but then abandoned his family and became an ascetic. Wandering for many years, he came under the influence of both Hindus and Muslims, especially Sufis. The mystic poet Kabir made a deep impression on Nanak. Nanak conceived of the project of harmonizing Hinduism and Islam and chose to preach to this effect through song, accompanied on the rabab, a stringed instrument of Arabic origin, by a Muslim musician. After a mystical experience at 29, Nanak declared, There are no Hindus, there are no Muslims. He encouraged women to be equally as involved in religion and everyday life as men, a notion that shocked both Hindus and Muslims. Nanak was followed by nine other gurus. The last declared that, thereafter, the sacred scripture of Sikhism, called Adi Granth, would serve as guru. The religion is strictly monotheistic, rejecting idols and incarnations of the divine, while adhering to reincarnation. The religion also rejects caste, wine, tobacco, slander, hypocrisy, and pilgrimages. It requires loyalty, gratitude, philanthropy, justice, impartiality, truth, and honesty. India has been a tolerant culture for millennia. Unfortunately, this often led to them being conquered by invaders including Turkish Muslims in the 11th century and more recently by the French and British. India is a nation founded on peace and nonviolence, a claim few countries can make. 
When violence would break out, Mahatma Gandhi would call for nonviolence and would fast until it manifested. When nearing its independence, India was considering dividing the land up into two countries, one primarily Hindu, the other Muslim. Mahatma Gandhi was one of the few voices calling for the unity of the land. He even suggested that the leader of the Muslim League, Muhammad Ali Jinnah, become India's first president if that would keep the land united. This did not happen, though, and the land was divided into India and Pakistan. They have been at war to varying degrees ever since. Today, India and Pakistan have their nuclear weapons aimed at one another. There are many inspiring and fascinating individuals who were born in India or spent a significant part of their lives there. Mahatma Gandhi, Paramahansa Yogananda, Sri Aurobindo and the Mother, Buddha, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, Osho, Sri Ravi Shankar, J. Krishnamurti, Helena Blavatsky, and Mother Teresa. India's poets include Rabindranath Tagore, who won a Nobel Prize in Literature in 1913, Tukaram, who lived from 1608 to 1649, Mira, who lived from 1498 to 1550, and Kabir, who lived from 1440 to 1518. To learn more about these last three poets, I highly recommend the book Love Poems from God, written by Daniel Ladinsky. Here are a few excerpts from that book. By Mira, A Hundred Objects Close By I know a cure for sadness. Let your hands touch something that makes your eyes smile. I bet there are a hundred objects close by that can do that. Look at beauty's gift to us. Her soul is so great she enlivens the earth, the sky, our soul. Also by Mira is the way they held each other. A woman and her young daughter were destitute and traveling to another country where they hoped to find a new life. Three men stole them while they were camping. They were brought to a city and sold as slaves, each to a different owner. They were given one minute more together before their fates became unknown. My soul clings to God like that, the way they held each other. Next are two poems by Tukaram. The first is called Becoming Whole. The woman whose speech and actions are the same, her feet become worthy of worship. Keeping our word is the alchemy to become free and whole. Try and make amends for any broken hearts or broken promises. If you cannot do so in form, then prayer can heal a debt with the light you can send. And even a man can become this precious gold. Next by Tukaram is Landlocked in Fur. 
I was meditating with my cat the other day, and all of a sudden she shouted, What happened? I knew exactly what she meant, but encouraged her to say more, feeling that if she got it all out on the table, she would sleep better that night. So I responded, Tell me more, dear. And she soulfully meowed. Well, I was mingled with the sky. I was comets whizzing here and there. I was suns and heat. Hell, I was galaxies. But now look, I am landlocked in fur. To this I said, I know exactly what you mean. What to say about conversations between mystics. Next, we'll look at two writings from Kabir. The first is called Visiting Holy Shrines. If you circumambulated every holy shrine in the world ten times, it would not get you to heaven as quick as controlling your anger. The second by Kabir is called See If They Wet Their Pants. The words Guru, Swami, Superswami, Master, Teacher, Murshid, Yogi, Priest, most of those sporting such a title are just peacocks. The litmus test is, hold them upside down over a cliff for a few hours. If they don't wet their pants, maybe you found a real one. I would like to share a few of my impressions from our recent Rosicrucian journey to India. First, I was struck by how spirituality pervades every aspect of people's lives in India. Their views on their relationships with the divine and sacred spaces and their family members, their social life, etc. 82% of India's population is Hindu, so in large part I am speaking of Hindu perspectives. However, spirituality seems to pervade all Indians' lives, much more than in the West. I learned a great deal being exposed to perceptions that are very different from mine, related to death, fate, cycles of life, time, etc. Indians seem to view themselves more as part of a continuum and de-emphasize the role of the individual. Family life is very important to them. Again, their role in the continuum. I also found Indian people to be very polite and considerate. A good example of this is the way they drive. Riding on a bus in India is quite an experience. We would look out the window and see an elephant meandering along next to us, a cow coming the wrong way down the street, and cars and motor scooters driving on our side of the street to go around traffic on the other side. There was a noticeable absence of road rage. Everyone seemed to agree that if you cut someone off or drove the wrong way down your lane, they must need to get somewhere sooner than you do. I never saw any aggression in this apparently ruleless game. And although there was a lot of horn honking, it was always meant to notify another driver or pedestrian, never a cow, that you were there rather than trying to get them to move. If there is one driving law in India, I think it is probably that cows have the right of way. I was also impressed with how many deeply inspiring people 
are from India or spent a significant part of their lives there. In the 3rd century BCE, after Emperor Ashoka united the Indian subcontinent by force, he was so stricken with remorse that he renounced violence and became a Buddhist. He dedicated the rest of his life to the peaceful promotion of social welfare and economic development and tolerance for all religions. Mother Teresa, who was born in Macedonia, spent 65 years in India. Her primary task was to love and care for those persons nobody was prepared to look after. She won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1979. Mahatma Gandhi helped birth a nation through nonviolence. I was also impressed in other ways, in some cases shocking to me. Over one billion people live in India. Its massive population is overwhelming and exacerbates its challenges with poverty, HIV-AIDS, and pollution. As an American woman, I value individual rights. This is part of my upbringing, culture, and education. This isn't right or wrong, it's just how I was raised. Parenthetically, although the United States Declaration of Independence guarantees these personal rights, it is not lost on me that it took nearly 200 years and constitutional amendments to legally guarantee these rights to women and people of color. In my perception... Hinduism does not demonstrate these same values. The Hindu caste system privileges some people over others based on the family into which they were born. Some people are still considered untouchables. Men enjoy more rights than women do. In Hinduism, if a man becomes a widower, he can remarry. If a woman becomes a widow, she cannot. Many Hindus openly express their preference for the birth of a male child over a female child. Employment and educational opportunities are far superior for males in India than for females. Also, 95% of Hindu marriages are arranged. Acceptance of this concept is almost beyond my comprehension. However, several Indians pointed out to me the low rate of divorce in Hinduism around 5%, compared to 40 to 50% of marriages in the United States that end in divorce. It was quite a learning experience for me to visit India, a culture so different from my own. I learned something every hour, and surely broadening my perspectives, whether I agree with what I am introduced to or not, is healthy for a Rosicrucian student. Although usually we focus on the Western sources of the Rosicrucian tradition, there are many Eastern practices and concepts that are part of our teachings as well. Our Rosicrucian breathing meditation technique, the overall exercise, and vowel sound intonations are examples. We also share concepts related to an immanent supreme being and the ways in which we can understand manifestations or attributes of the unknowable God. We inherited from the East the concepts of karma and reincarnation, 
which every Rosicrucian student is encouraged to consider, an ahimsa that so profoundly resonates with the Pythagorean school. H. Spencer Lewis was especially interested in Buddhism and other Eastern traditions and introduced some of these practices in the Amork teachings. India is a fascinating culture that gave birth to at least four major religions, Hinduism, Jainism, Buddhism, and Sikhism, and to many inspiring and fascinating individuals. <laughs>